Father God, thank you so much that we can just kind of punt with the difficulties of the morning. Um, I, I thank you that um, you provide. Um, Father, as we continue through Hebrews, it's getting a little hard, and, um, and yet there's such rich jewels there that are, are there to encourage us, to help us to really see, see your son Jesus, to consider him, to fix our eyes on him, and to allow him to be the center of our lives, the source of our identity, and the one that we run to, our merciful and faithful high priest. Father, I pray this morning as we look at this text that you would, you would help me most of all. It's, it's a little bit confusing, and I know I've already ha- heard some comments that they had a little trouble with it. So um, I just pray there'll be no confusion here, but that your Holy Spirit would just open our eyes of understanding. And, and where we are confused, we could just um, skip by it and instead see the things that we do understand, and that is who your son is. And maybe find courage and, and comfort and joy and peace in knowing that he is sitting at your right hand, that he is our merciful and faithful high priest who completely identifies with the struggles that we have. That, that alone, Father, if we get nothing else today, may we sit and meditate on that. Um, be with us now. Help us to understand. Fill this room in my mouth, in Jew's mouth, with your words and with the power of your Holy Spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Who had trouble with the lesson? Is it hard? Did you have trouble figuring out who the hymns? A little bit? A little bit? It, it's hard. It was hard. I'll tell you that. And um, we'll, we'll kind of, we'll go through it. And be sure to ask questions if you don't understand. I, I do. It was, it was difficult for me. I had to sit and think. And that's why I put that little note in there. Kind of read through. Pay attention. See where it's going to figure out which he is it referring to man? Is it referring to God? Is it referring to Christ? You kind of have to think. They threw it a little bit, and I said, put a little question mark if you weren't sure, and we'll see if we can figure it out in class. So, okay. Key words. Key people. Who's key? Jesus? God? Anybody else? Anything else? Man and a lot of synonyms for man, a lot of pronouns for man. Yeah, children, brothers, talking about man. Where, where, let's, let's back up just for a minute. Where have we been? Let's think back. I think in Hebrews, Romans was this way as well. It's a little bit helpful to kind of think where we've been, to kind of review a little bit. So let's just think back a little bit of where we've been and what we've learned about Jesus so far. What in chapter one, what would you say kind of the primary theme we've seen so far about Jesus? That he's superior to whom? Yes, so we the author's been really trying to make this this point that Jesus is superior to the angels, and in what way is he? No, no, that's not what I'm looking for. How is he superior to the angels? Why is he superior to the angels? He created them. Yes, they are just created beings. He is the creator. And they are his created beings. He is the one that was uh, out with God, speaking and bringing creation into existence. 
What else did we learn, did we see about him? Yes, he is God. When we think about the Creator, that really equates with he is God. And we saw in that cross-reference of John that it is the Word. The Word made flesh. He dwelt among us and revealed who the Father was. Other things. He is the Savior. Because what were the angels? What was the angels' role? They're just messengers. They're servants. They're, they're the errand runners of, of doing what God has asked them to do. They cannot save. They can serve, but they cannot save. Jesus saves. Jesus has a more excellent name than they do. How does he have a more excellent name than they do? What is his name? Hmm? He is, he, yes, he is Lord, but what else? He is Son. So which of the angels did he ever say, today I have begotten you as my son? He didn't say that. because he, he is the only son. They are sons of God, sometimes referred to little s, sons of God, but he is the son, capital S, the son of God. Other things we learned about him. Remember his power, he holds everything together. Yes, in relation to creation, he is the one that upholds it by the word of his power. So in all of these things, we think about, if we just kind of, and we could add more to this, but if this is a good summary statement. If we're seeing all these things about Jesus, primarily what are we seeing about him? We're seeing his deity, aren't we? Yeah, we're seeing that the sonship, the lordship, <coughs> essentially, this is Christ as God, his deity. He is fully God in the flesh. And now, the author's going to switch with that little word for. We had the warning last week, and if you weren't here, you missed a lively discussion. Won't be lively today because Jim's not here, <laughs> rolling his chair back and forth in the back of the room. Somebody, somebody told me afterwards, they said, that was so funny, it was like being live in an episode of The Office. <laughs> I said, I, I have only watched that a few times, but you're right, it was. <laughs> it, it was hysterical, it really was. You weren't here. Anyway, so it, he starts out with a four. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So what, when he is making that the use of the word for, he's continuing his reasoning, isn't he? He's continuing to reason Jesus is better, he is superior to the angels, and now I'm going to give you more reasons why he is superior to the angels. Do you all see that? You see how that's connecting right there? Okay. Questions, comments before we go on? Paul is like a lawyer. He's stating he's still working on his... Well, now it's not Paul. Oh, well, that's right. We don't know who wrote it. Was that a slip? Yeah. You weren't here. We, yeah. We, we really... I really don't believe Paul wrote this. He, the writer is similar to Paul in the way he will set up his... It's okay. I just don't want anybody to think Paul wrote it. 
Um, most scholars, very few, very few, in, in, oh, several hundred years ago, there were a few people that thought Paul wrote it, but most scholars today do not attribute it to Paul. But really, no one knows for sure who wrote this. The Greek language is, the, the Greek is so superior to what Paul could write, really. Yeah, there's, whoever it is, have, there's some similarities to how Paul would have written, but I don't think Paul wrote it. I'm going to hold that the woman wrote it since Jim's not here. I <laughs> don't, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, really, I don't even care. <laughs> God wrote it. He wrote it for us. But you're right. It's like a lawyer. You are correct. That point is great. It's like a lawyer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my case. And let's think about that for a minute. Why is he building this case? This is something when we're in a book like Hebrews, we've got to keep coming back to, why is he building this case? Why is he laying out all of these points about Jesus' superiority to the angels, and next week we'll look at how he is superior to Moses? Why is he doing this? Because they're wanting to go back to Judaism. Yes, and why are they wanting to go back to Judaism? Why are they being tempted to go back? Because of persecution. The fires are, have been turned up, and they're experiencing some severe difficulties in their life. And if they go back to Judaism, it'll take the pressure off, because it's a protected religion, whereas Christianity is not at this point in history. So the temptation is to go back, and we have to keep that in mind all the time. What was the author's intended meaning in everything he's saying? And everything he's saying is, I'm writing to this particular group of people to try to encourage and exhort them and warn them, you cannot go back, but here is why you can't go back and why would you want to go back. Do you all see that? That's very important to keep in mind. We've got to answer those questions first. Remember the first week I gave you the little, the little upside down you? You know, as far as the aim, the author's intended meaning. This was written probably in the 60s AD. We are at 2016, almost 2017, shudder the thought. So what was he saying to them? What were their circumstances? What was he wanting them to know? How was he trying to encourage them? How was he trying to warn them in their situation? And we have to understand that before we can cross this span of time down to us and say, okay, now here's the application to us. Because it is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Does that make sense? That'll protect us from um, making wrong interpretations if we do that. Okay. Very good. Okay, let's see what we can do with these he's and him's. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. What is the author quoting right here? Psalm 8. Did you go and read Psalm 8? That was one of your questions in your homework. Did you read Psalm 8? Okay, what did you find out in reading Psalm 8? What's the context of Psalm 8? He's taking verses from Psalm 8, and he's going to make a point about Jesus. But let's just look at Psalm 8 as Psalm 8. He's talking about man, isn't he? And what, and what is he saying about man in the context of what? Yeah, in the context of creation. You see how the author is looking out and he's saying, wow, look at creation. Is it not amazing? But God, just through speaking his word, I just see that, poof, there it is. And all the majesty of creation, is it the ocean or is it the beach, whatever it is that, you know, you get your, your refreshment from. It's the mountains for me. The beach does nothing. <laughs> it's sand and it's hot and salty. Don't understand it, but put me in the mountains and I will go. Wow, this is this is breathtaking to me, and I really feel the presence of God. So He's looking out over creation, saying that just the enormity of it, all the stars in the sky, that even with telescopes, there seems to be no end to them. And He says, "What is man?" little specky and little ant mole man down here that you even give him any attention whatsoever. And what does the psalm say? Made him a little lower than Crowned him with glory and honor. Do you see how this ties back? I gave you Genesis 1, 26 through 28. What did you learn? In Gen I mean, this is the creation account. What was the original intention of man when he was created? He would, he would have dominion over everything, every living being, all of the earths. He was to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue it, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. What else? We were made in God's image. We are the only created being made in God's image. It's not said of the angels. It is not said of any of the animal kingdom at all that they were made in God's image. But man was made in God's image. And God had a, 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 an intended purpose for man, that man would glorify him. Man was crowned with glory and honor. He would have dominion over the earth. What happened? The fall. Man sinned, the fall, and all of this came to a screeching halt. We do still have dominion over certain animals and things. We do, but we do it very um, imperfectly. Yes, Dan? We were also in direct communication with God. God walked in the garden and talked to yes. And that was, yes, it was. And they lived in a perfect world. And because they ate of, of the fruit of the tree of life, they had to be cast out. And the cherubim put there in guard that they could never um, come back in lest, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. So they lost their perfect environment. They lost, you know, fellowship was broken with God. Um, the, earth was mar the earth was cursed itself because as a result of what, what man had done. And what was intended, all of this glory and honor is now, it's, it's, that's not the state that we see at all. 
I think that's who he's talking about right here. So when you look at the, you know, it's been testified somewhere, what is man? I think it is saying that's man. Those, those references in 6 through 8, I think he's talking about man. Now, does somebody see that differently? Or were you just totally confused? Mine's all mucked up because I had Jesus, that was Jesus first, and then I read Psalm 8, and the other references went, oh, so I put the flesh color on that one. Too. But that's, that's, I'm glad that she missed that reference because she didn't, uh, it looked like it was Jesus to me. Yeah, did somebody else think that way? Yes. Did you mark it that way? Is it were Jesus? Did at any point, did you begin to question, or <coughs> until you came to class today, did you, did you question? Huh? Today. Today. Okay. okay. The Son of Man made it, it was what threw me initially, was okay. saying the Son of Man, because Jesus has been referred to as that as well. Yes, he has. So, yeah, that threw me first. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to throw you a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very confident that it is referring to man, and then it switches to Jesus in verse 9, and that is the position I hold. But, but as I then read commentaries, there are a couple of people that say, no, this is all just talking about Jesus. <clears throat> and, and so I texted Jim last night. We talked on the phone this morning, and I said, which position? And he said, I'm with you, Nancy. I, I think those guys, and he kind of had this whole explanation of how they interpret the use of Old Testament verses in the New Testament. And he said, I don't agree with that. I agree with the position that he is talking about man here. And what what the psalmist said is that this is what how God initially viewed man before the fall. And follow me with this, okay? And so if you want to agree to disagree, you, you still can. I can find you. George Guthrie agrees with you. <laughs> And he is a very noted scholar. The NIV application Bible commentary, he takes the position that all of this is talking about Jesus. But I had a real hard time following his argument for that at all because it makes so much sense that he's, when I go back to the original, he's talking, it's not so much a messianic psalm as it is a psalm that he is using here to make a point about Jesus. I have a question. Yes. So is this in the quoted because for a little while, for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus is, but we are too, are we not? Who's going to rule and reign with Jesus in the end? We are. Are the angels? No. No. So for which for was it for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Jesus is the one that rules and reigns. He is the one that everything will be put in subjection under his feet. And if we go into further references, which we didn't do, who will rule and reign with him? We will. We will rule and reign. The angels never have and they never will. They've never had a position of ruling and reigning. 
Does that make sense? Does that make it a little more clear? So in some respects, he's talking about both man and Jesus. Follow me here where I go with it, okay? So, but we see Jesus. And what do we see about Jesus? But we see Jesus. And what do we see about him? Okay, so he was a little wild, time phrase, lower than the angels. Okay, anything else? His crown. Mm-hmm. Crown with glory and honor. Okay, anything else? Hmm? Perfect priest. Okay, he is a perfect high priest. <laughs> but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crown of glory and honor because of what? The suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should the, that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. So let's, let's look at this a little bit. What is, it's your, I'm looking at your question four. When the writer uses Hebrews, I mean Psalm 8, to talk about Jesus, what is his point? What is he wanting to say? And I had someone email, and unfortunately, I, I'm looking at she's not here today. Bless her heart. She was really confused by this question, so I'll have to get with her. But um, what is he saying? Well, if you look at the verse before up there, it's he's used, they're using the same words for us, and they are for Jesus. In other words, showing his humanity is identical to our humanity. Where we saw deity in the beginning of the book, now we see his humanity. That's where he's going with all of this. You're on the right path. Other thoughts? Was this a hard question? Yes? No? Okay, yeah, Jude. Did you hear her? Through Jesus, God showed us what the original man was to do. Because he is sinless, and he is God, and he never sinned. But he was fully, he was fully divine, fully human. So he completely fulfilled and is going to restore and redeem for us what we were intended to be in the beginning before the fall. Is that making a little more sense now? So in making, in using Psalm 8, he is, he is, he's showing his humanity that he, for a little while, became lower than his created beings, that he might make, affect salvation for us. You also looked at Philippians 2. How does Philippians 2 reinforce this concept of Jesus' humanity? What did Philippians 2 say? That's your question four. 
Seven? Seven? Yeah. But what did he, how did he do that? How did he, June, how did he completely submit himself to God's will? Through the cross, through his suffering, his obedience. He gave up his rights. He gave up his rights and became, and became what? Yes, he took on the form of a servant. He gave up, he didn't hold equality with God, a thing that he grasped, but took on flesh and blood and became man. I mean, can you can you just even begin to translate the enormity of that? This is the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power, that created it, and is what and is the creator of the angels. Yet for a while, in loving submission to the Father's plan, he goes lower than the angels in his created being takes on the human flesh, the flesh and blood that we share, and lowers himself to that point as a servant of the highest degree to serve us, to humble himself, serve us, limit his powers, not use them, then die on a cross to make purifications of sin for us because it was the only way it could be done. Yes, I love that because he is the only being that even has something to give up. Because all other creation has anything they have is bestowed upon them. And he's wow. the only one that intrinsically has. He's God. So Did you he's hear the him? only one that has anything to give up. He is the only one because he is intrinsically God that has something that he could give up. Everything else is bestowed on us. That's a wonderful thought, Brendan. Just absolutely a beautiful thing. It's love at its finest, is what it is. It is God's heart laid there for us in what Christ did for us. Are you beginning now to see this is the point that he's making in using Psalm 8? Is that making a little more sense to you? Okay. Does that make more sense to you? Is your name, um, tell me your name. Deborah. Does that make more sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 Questions, comments? I just keep going back to the theology 101, hypostatic union, all mm-hmm. God, all man, all the time. Mm-hmm. Because that's easy to, if you don't keep that in mind, for some people they think he just took off completely God and just kind of became a human, but he was still God, mm-hmm. but he was man. And I think it's real easy to not stew in that one because I mean, sometimes people forget that that it's he didn't he didn't use it all the time, but he was still all God. He was still he didn't give up any of his deity to become man. He was fully human. The hypostatic union. He was fully human. He was fully God. And it's hard for us to wrap our human brains around that. And there's. We can, you know, theologians can expound it and debate it, but there's a point where you just by faith say, I know that's true because God says it's true. I don't really quite understand how that all fits together, but it's true. Yes, Tom. It makes the sacrifice, I think, even more profound to know that that was God on the cross. Yes. Not, not a man. It was God on the cross. 
gone any of that, a suffering, if he, if he wanted to, or if he changed his mind. He could have. What did, what did Satan do in the wilderness? Tried to tempt him to call the angels down. And I'll give you all of this. Of course, he didn't have, he really didn't have the authority to do that. Only, only God did. But tempting him to give up this way of the cross. And he could have. I don't think he could have, but he could have. If that makes sense. <laughs> he had the ability. He couldn't. Because then we would have salvation, and he wasn't going to sin and disobey. But he could have. Yes, too. He could not be our high priest today. We wouldn't have a high priest. Because look, look, if you go on down through this passage, move on down through the verses. You're, you're so right. Since therefore, look in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, like, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the <coughs> devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that kind of answers the question of what was the purpose of his incarnation? What was the purpose of his incarnation? Why did he have to become man? Why did he have to take on human flesh? <coughs> the high priests were humans, yes, they were. Because the high priest was one that could sympathize. The high priest that went in that once a year into the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling because they, they weren't completely cleansed of their sin at that moment. They might not come out alive. But they, they were, the high priests were human themselves so they could sympathize and empathize with the struggle of man and the sin of man. If he didn't take on humanity, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have that. Do y'all see that? Other thoughts, why did he have to be human? So he could overcome death. So that what? He could overcome death. So that he could overcome death. It was the only way to overcome death. Yes, Jim? Did you hear? He satisfies the requirement, which kind of, that's jumping. I know we're jumping around a little bit. But that jumps a little bit to that question about propitiation. Because here in 17, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, that's a long, multi-syllable word that uh, could trip us up. What does it mean? Yes, He We are clothed with his righteousness. Yes, yes. It's, it's awesome. 
So what does propitiation mean? Atonement. It means atonement? Uh, I put reparation or expiation for sin. It's being reconciled, which is a banking term. Mm -hmm. Our debt is settled. Okay. Those, yes, I would add more to it. Somebody else? Avoiding the wrath of God. Avoiding the wrath of God. Those of you all that did Romans, do you remember? What did you remember about God's wrath and propitiation? Let's just go to that passage. Somebody go to that passage in your homework in Romans. And I need you to read loud. Romans 3, 21 through 26. And while you get there, let me give you some background. In Romans 1, we see that the wrath of God has been poured out on the unrighteousness of man. And through 1 through 3... Paul, Paul did write Romans. Paul clearly establishes our need for, for God to intervene on our behalf. But there's no way we can perfectly observe the law. We will break it every time. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We are all guilty before him. And that apart from his intervention, there is, there's no hope for us at all. There's nothing we can do. We are condemned by our sin, under the wrath of God, because God's wrath, his holiness, wrath is kind of the flip side of his holiness. His holiness cannot tolerate sin. Cannot tolerate sin. And his wrath demands that sin be judged. It has to be judged. And if it's not judged, then he's not just, he's not righteous, he's not holy. So somebody read those verses loud and clear. Go ahead, Tim. Go ahead, Eric. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former things. It was shown, or it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. Awesome. No. Is that the 26? Yeah. Okay. You can stop there. Yes. So propitiation is everything that Jennifer said, but the reason I said it's more, it takes on the whole, the whole concept of um, turning God's wrath away. For example, in the pagan world, they understood propitiation because to them, if things were not going well, it meant the gods were angry. Therefore, I made a sacrifice to try to appease the gods and turn their anger away from me so that he would bring crops or fertility or whatever it is that, that they were lacking. Now, for them, though, uh, it was just trying to appease God's anger and hope that it would with no guarantee that it would. So they, they understood a little better the idea of propitiation, whereas we, we have, we, uh, as, as a people, I'm not saying you in here, struggle a little bit with the idea of God's wrath and God's anger. 
But if you don't balance it, if you don't understand it in the context of his holiness and his righteousness, then you, you miss what we mean by his wrath. Because he is so holy and he's so righteous, that it must be, there must be a perfect blood sacrifice that, that propitiates, that atones, that that turns his, that is the satisfaction for the payment, the just penalty of sin. Does that make sense? It is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath to favor. That is the concept of propitiation. And what we know from Romans is that, that those two verses, but now in 3.21, are hugely profound. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. The just and the justifier had to intervene and do it for us. I like John Stott's definition of this. And I'm going to say it and then I'll say it again so you can write it down. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Write it down. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That's propitiation. That is divine love, mercy, and compassion. That I'm looking down on my creation that is so mired in sin and so helpless and condemned to death, to eternal death, can do nothing to help himself. Absolutely nothing to help himself. So in my love and mercy, I've got a plan. And that plan is, my son is going to, for a little while, be lowering the angels, and he's going to take on human flesh is the only way to render the devil powerless over death. It's the only way to conquer death and provide the way of salvation. So I'm going to make the provision for the perfect, sinless blood sacrifice that will provide the way of salvation for those who believe for all eternity. Do you all see that? Does that make sense? Wow. Right? Amen? Questions? Is anybody confused? Because if you are, I, I don't want you to be. I'm thankful for your years of teaching us Old Testament history because if you get steeped in that, it's easy to go back and look at the learning about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies what happened and having that rope that jerked them out, they did something wrong and got sad and dead. All those layers of history that you've given us and helped us study helps make this a big, even deeper, richer picture than just, yeah, you did this and this. That, and, and that is why I love Hebrews. I think I've said that in the beginning of when we first started this. The thing I love about Hebrews is it will make your faith in what Jesus did on the cross richer. It will also give you a richer understanding of his present work, his present ministry as your merciful and faithful high priest. It doesn't mean, you can, you can read Hebrews on your own. You can never do a study like this and, and have a, a really strong grasp of what Hebrews is saying. Our goal is just to give you tools to take you a little deeper, to see the, layer, the depth of the layers of who God is and who Jesus is and what, what he is trying to do. 
I know the first time I did Hebrews, I mean, I, I was like, wow, I don't think I, now that I know this, I'm not sure I really ever understood what Jesus did for me and how he did it and the full depth of what he did until you, you do tie back to the Old Testament, that all of it was pointing to him. So that, that I hope that you you all have that, those light bulb moments as well. Nancy, that's what makes um, the temptations of the wilderness so much more powerful. Because Satan did have, leading back to what you said earlier, Satan did have power over his humanity and the fact that he could tempt him. He didn't have power over the fact that he was perfect and he was sinless and he was the blood sacrifice. He didn't have power over that. He did it's the it's the what we struggle with the all man all God all the time that's really hard for our human minds to comprehend but Satan had power over the human part but he couldn't separate the, the God from the human I, I, does that make sense? it makes sense but you know what I'm thinking of as you say that because you brought up the word tempted because it says in here later he was tempted as we are. In what way was he tempted? Have you ever thought, yeah, but he doesn't really, does he really understand he was God? Does he really understand my temptation and my struggle? How is his temptation different from ours? Have you thought about that? Have you struggled with, does he really understand? No? Nobody have? He overcame his. That's how it's different from ours. What do we do when the temptation gets incredibly intense? What's our tendency? What? Right. When it gets really intense. Go back to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this, that's what this is. Like <laughs> we give in. Don't we give in? Oh, let's be honest. We pray. You're right. We do all those things, but but we sin. There's a point of a level of temptation that we will give in. I believe that Jesus suffered a level of temptation we will never know because he it ratcheted up notches we can't even imagine because he didn't give in. The point there's a point of intensity we'll, we'll cave. So he went way beyond that. So when it says he understands our temptations because he was tempted, he understands a level we don't even experience of what it is to resist that. I doubt Satan took it easy on him. Uh, no, he didn't. I bet he gave it all Yeah. And Nancy, the statement that you said, God himself gave himself to save us from himself, uh -huh. uh, that's also a parenting statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how many times do we just want to kill our kids? Um, and so it's like, go to your room, because I'm giving you a chance to save yourself. <laughs> 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 Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That is very funny. A parenting statement. <laughs> okay, back up for a minute. In verse 10. For it was fitting... That, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Fitting. I thought that was an interesting word. What? 
why was it fitting that Jesus, that was one of your questions, why was it fitting that God had Jesus do this? Because that's what he was made for. That's why he sent him? Okay. Other thoughts? ultimate plan of how he was going to affect salvation for us? Yes. Do y'all see that? That's why it was fitting. There was no other way. It was reasonable. It was fitting. It was in keeping with who he was as our creator, as our loving God, that he would be the one that would give himself to save us from himself. That's what I mean by fitting. But I thought that was kind of an interesting word, fitting, to put that in there. He would he would do that for us. I had a thought which I don't even know if it's relevant or true, but I thought Jesus really couldn't uh, have given Himself as on the cross or as the sacrifice our sins. Say at age twelve or age eighteen or something, He needed to go through living that life and suffering as He did to become. Yeah, even though he would have always been God's son being sacrificed. And he was always perfect. Right. Yeah, because that was one of the questions. If he had to be, how did he have to be made perfect in his sufferings if he was already perfect? And you answered it. Do you all see that? He had, if he was going to be the merciful, faithful high priest, he had to experience that. He had to understand what obedience was. He had to understand what that level of temptation was. He had to go through all of the struggles that we do because we live in a broken, fallen world and we're limited by our flesh and blood, or he wasn't going to be the merciful, faithful high priest. That is, it wasn't that he wasn't perfect. He need, the way of suffering was the way. Do you all, does that make sense to you all? Does that answer that question for you? Yes, Tony. Nancy, on, on our side, I've always felt that came, one of the reasons many of you talked about many things today, but that we would really know the fathers. I mean, we so we could develop a relationship. I mean, it, I think it would be hard, you know, for us to develop a relationship if we never had a physical form or a teachings, teachings or his life, you know, to you know make us understand. So I felt it, it really helped me to understand who God was, so I could develop a relationship with Him. Did you hear her? Helped her understand who God was so she so she can develop a relationship identify with him. To know that I can identify with him because he has identified with me. One quote I had on this that it was fitting was that nowhere is God more fully revealed as God than when we see him in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's that's who our God is. Nowhere is God more fully revealed as God than when we see him in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is him fully revealed. Yes, Norma? One question that I have that I don't know if you know the answer, but it's always, there's always perplexed me. How did he become like the female? I, I, you know, a masculine, feminine, that has always been, 
had hoped. <laughs> I'm sure there's some theological explanation that if Jim were here, he would expound <laughs> upon. Yeah. Ask him next week. Well, I'll be, well, I'll be when we get to heaven, I'm sure. He'll yeah. Explain. I'm sure it's not like Pat on Saturday Night Live. Pat, androgynous Pat. You all know who androgynous Pat is on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Okay, and not, notice too, notice too in this verse, it says, And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I don't really like the word founder. A, a better, if you look at other translations, you will see author, you will see pioneer, uh, some of the more amplified will say trailblazer. Essentially what it's saying is that he, because, because he did what he did, because he took on flesh, he died on the cross, he opened up the way for us to follow. In that respect, he is the trailblazer. He has blazed the trail and gone before us, and now as sons and as brothers, we follow that path. He has opened the way for us through his sacrifice. That's a beautiful concept. That is a beautiful word. Thoughts, comments? Okay. I think we're, we're about done. Have we answered all the questions? Yeah, we really have. Do you all have questions, comments? Anything else you want to add? How were you strengthened and encouraged this week? Here's one of your questions. How were you strengthened and encouraged this week? Or were you in such confusion of what him was who <laughs> that you lost sight of seeing him? How were you strengthened and encouraged? Because that's the goal of this book. I don't know about you all. You know, where you are in, in your um, walk with the Lord, but I, I think... God put me in this book this, this year for a particular reason. I'll just be really honest. I struggle a lot with, that, with finding my identity in Christ. These two girls know that because they're my accountability girls. That I, I can be quickly taken out. You know, someone can look at me wrong or say something, and I'm just, whew, well, flat on my back. So this is challenging me every week to say, put aside your circumstances. Put aside what that coworker said. Put aside just the busyness and the fog of life. I love that quote. Did you read that quote I put in there? And he, he is my putt. He was the one I'm looking at. Just let him beam through all of that yuck and look at him and focus on him. And we're getting to do that every single week and have our minds be programmed with truths about who he is and what he has done for us. I hope you're experiencing that. Does anybody want to share? has suffered with tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Then I wrote down, and I don't know where I found this, but it says, as high priest, Christ not only affects reconciliation between God and man, but brings men safe through all hardships to the inheritance appointed for them. Mm -hmm. so for the inheritance, the future inheritance appointed for us. It doesn't mean there won't be suffering now. 
but we have to keep our eyes on the future. Jennifer. And uh, he models just the perfect, humble response to unjust treatment. Yes, he does. And I think that's an encouragement that we often need. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we want to fight for ourselves. Anybody else? Nancy, that has helped me. This study has to keep on keeping on. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's some are you weary? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I really want to just like, okay, you know, let somebody else take, take here, pass the torch. I don't know. But you just keep on, sure, keep me on. And that this is really powerful. Um, God speaks through this. To, don't, don't go back. Not only don't go back, but don't stop. <laughs> yeah, don't go back, but don't, yeah, but don't stop. And he will, we will see that when we get in the sec, the back half. Uh -huh. You know, run the race. Yes, Karen. Another thought that, well, I, I've known this, but it just kind of reminded me that that we're family. You know, we are children of God, and you know, uh, we're 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 all we're family, and He brings us into His family through Jesus. He's our brother. It says, "I'm not I'm not ashamed to call him my brother." Yeah. To stand and call him my brother. Yeah. I think the obedience. in the middle of talking and everything, so I don't know if I'm about to say a lot of stuff that you already said or already talked about. Um, hopefully, I won't, it won't be too repetitive for you as I kind of jump into some of the stuff. I did, actually, the first question I heard as I walked in, as you were, you were walking through or kind of talking to you this question, what does it mean when it says that Jesus was made perfect in his suffering? And, and thinking through that, and it, was, it was good to hear you guys talk through that because you guys are right on. And I want to explore that just a little bit more kind of by means of another theological question that raises its, uh, its head up in this passage a little bit. So what does it mean for Jesus to be made perfect? And, and we'll, we'll uh, explore a little bit more as we first talk through this concept that comes up in verse 17. Uh, so I want to read that real quick and, and, then, and then we'll talk our way through it a little bit. Um, there, uh, it says here in ESV, so it's, there's this word there in 17 that translators cannot agree on. If you, if you read, if, no matter, if you read seven different translations, you're probably going to get seven different words translating this one word in the Greek. The Greek word is holiskomai, and, and I'll read the, the verse to you and then show you where it is. ESV says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service, uh, in the service of God to make haliskomai for the sins of the people, or to haliskomai, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is that word um, that, that is so kind of debated in the NIV. If you have it, it will say, in order to make atonement for the sins of the people, in the NLT, it will say, in order to offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And in the message, it says to get rid of people's sins. And the RSV, Revised Standard Version, says to make expiation. To make expiation. That actually, ESV, as we said, says to make propitiation. That actually is the key debate here, is between what the ESV says to make propitiation and what the RSV says to make expiation. 
And, and basically, every translation is either leaning towards one or the other, or they're kind of pleading the fifth by the way they translate it. Just kind of translate it in a fairly generic tone, NIV, to make atonement is what it says. And, and that's a, that's a, it's not a bad translation. It's a, it's a good translation. It's also kind of a safe translation. It's a good, like, um, Switzerland translation, okay? Um, so just remain somewhat neutral on this subject and just say what happened. I'm not going to tell you how he made atonement, whether it was through propitiation or expiation, but, but this is what we're doing. And so, so this becomes kind of the big, big debate, and, and we've talked about this in some of the church. I want to say that I've actually even talked about this in, this in this actual setting, this Bible study before, but it was several years back a little bit this idea. Let me kind of explain to you real quick the difference between those two terms, propitiation and expiation, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about why people go one way or the other. Um, propitiation, this term refers to appeasing someone, namely God and his wrath. So someone is angry, someone has wrath, and you appease them um, through some sort of gift or offering. That is propitiation. In secular Greek, in, in the classical Greek, this word was used often to refer to the appeasement of the gods. So we want, we've done something that, that, have, that has ticked off the gods, that have made them angry with us, and, and they keep bringing wrath on us, they keep bringing um, hail on our crops, or they, they bring drought, or they bring whatever it is, and, and in order to make it stop, we need to appease them, we need to bring a propitiation to them. Um, this translation, though, is um, usually what is translated in the Greek, and yet oftentimes it is rejected by translators like the RSV um, on theological grounds. And, and the problem that a lot of theologians and, and scholars have with it is this idea um, that, um, that it makes God sound like the fickle gods of Greek mythology. Does God really need to be appeased in the same way that Zeus needs to be appeased? The same way that Apollos needs to be appeased? These, these crazy gods that you never knew what you were going to get, and they just kind of fly off the handle at any point and lose their temper. So we've got to bring something. We've got to bring a propitiation to appease them. Can we say that same thing about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the New Testament? And there are many of scholars who do not like this, this translation, and that's why ESV really is the only one that uses it. Um, and, and everybody else, as I said, kind of goes towards expiation or, or kind of pleads the fifth a little bit. Here's what expiation means. Um, this term has to do with the removal or the covering of something, namely in this case, sin. So the first one is a paying the penalty for or a or a appeasing the wrath that came by my sin is propitiation. Expiation is a taking away of that sin or sort of a covering up of it so it's no longer seen by God. Um, this was a this was kind of favored by this a big-time New Testament scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd, and C.H. Dodd was well familiar with Greek mythology. He had a lot of a lot of studies that he had been doing in Greek mythology. And so because he knew the gods of Greek mythology and knew what their nature was like, um, he was quick to say, no, 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 propitiation is not the word we want to use here to talk about God. He's not like those gods. Expiation is what's happening. We're not appeasing God and trying to make him happy and trying to keep him from getting angry. We're not appeasing him. He's simply, Jesus is expiating. He's removing our sins. 
He's covering our sins so they don't have to be dealt with. He's not um, appeasing God's wrath. Um, this view basically means, or what expiation means, is that Jesus cleanses us and allows us to be forgiven. So Jesus comes into my heart where the sin is, and he removes the sin and allows me to be forgiven. Um, a pretty good idea, right? Like, not a bad, I, I believe that, that Jesus comes into my life, that he removes the sin in my heart and allows me to be forgiven. So, kind of if I, if I could use kind of a, a couple of word pictures, if propitiation is Jesus in, is, is stepping in and deflecting God's wrath from me. So I am, in my sinfulness, I am in a place where God's wrath is aimed at me. And it is in his wrath, in his anger, that sin or that, that, that is aimed at me and is about to be poured out on me. And Jesus comes in and like a shield or a sponge or whatever you want to use, he deflects or absorbs that wrath himself and takes it. And so God's wrath <coughs> is spent and it is appeased. I'm okay. So that's propitiation. Expiation is that I have built a wall of sin between God and myself. I have built up these bricks between God and myself. And Jesus comes in and he takes the wall down. So that now there is no longer anything between myself and God. Jesus expiates. He removes the sin that was, in, uh, that was hindering me from God. Um, uh, again, and, and, and the main argument for this, for this expiation is the fact that a God of wrath does not seem to match up with the God of love that we see in the New Testament. And so this is the main reason that most scholars move towards expiation. Um, in, uh, in 2013, you guys familiar with, I know you are, you, we sing it here fairly often at Sunnybrook, the, the kind of modern hymn, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. That is one of my favorite, favorite uh, songs that we sing here at Sunnybrook. It's either, it's either number one or it's top three. Uh, of all the songs that we sing at Sunnybrook. I, I love it. It is so um, doctrinally full and so gospel-oriented on who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, by the way, side note, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but just my own two cents. Um, there are a lot of songs today in modern worship um, that sing a whole lot about how much I long for God's presence or how much, um, how deeply I love God or how close I feel to him. There's nothing, uh, nothing comes close that could ever compare to your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Okay, those kinds of, um, I feel so close to you. I long for your presence, Lord. Lord, we want to give our hearts to you. There are a lot of songs, modern worship songs, that sing those things. Good things. Good things to sing about. Here's kind of an irony I've noticed. That I feel those things the most. I feel close to God. I feel the desire to give my heart to God. I feel near to his presence and I long for him the most when I'm not singing the songs about all of that. I feel those things the most, actually, when I'm singing not so much about what I want and what I'm trying to give to God and what I desire to have from God. I, I feel those things more when I'm singing more about God and what he's done and who he is. And when I, when I, see, when I sing things like in Christ alone, and, and, and I, I can only really speak for myself, but it does seem to be true, actually. I... I I listen, I hear it in, in, in an auditorium on Sunday, um, that it seems like we sing the loudest when we sing not so much about us and our desire to be near to God, uh, but when we sing about Jesus 
and who he is and what he's done. We sing about God and his holiness and his righteousness. And again, I love those songs. I think there's some really cool stuff to those songs that talk about being near to God. I, I, I like having those inserted in there. I, I, those songs mean more to me after I've sang about who God is and what Jesus has done. So, like I said, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, just a side note. Um, but in Christ alone, I like it because it's one of these songs over here that is so rich and full of him. In 2013, the Presbyterian Church, now there are two different, there are a number of different strains of the Presbyterian Church, but there are two major strains of the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA and the PCA. The PCUSA is the larger of the two, and it has kind of traditionally been the main branch of Presbyterianism, but it has, over the years, become increasingly more liberal in its theology. Um, less and less concern, less and less belief uh, in the inerrancy of Scripture, um, in things like the virgin birth, and things like the incarnation, and so the PCUSA has become increasingly liberal. The PCA um, lines up with us a lot in its beliefs about Scripture and Jesus and salvation and all those things. Okay, so um, in 2013, the PCUSA put out its new hymn book, um, and after after some long discussions and a vote, they actually dropped uh, this hymn in Christ alone from their hymn book. Um, they decided that they did not want to have it in there, and the main reason that it, it all centered around one line in that in, in that hymn. Um, uh, when on the cross as Jesus died, what's the next line? The wrath of God was satisfied. When Jesus died, God's wrath was appeased, propitiation. And because of that line in that song, um, this church, the PCUSA, dropped it from their hymns and said, we're no longer going to sing that. They actually asked if they could change the lyrics. When on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, uh, was what they wanted to sing, but Keith Getty, who wrote the song, said, no, you can't change it, and so they said, okay, we'll drop it then. Um, did not want to sing it because of that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. That is propitiation, and that is something that they, that they were incredibly uncomfortable with, as many scholars are. God, God's wrath has to be appeased? I gotta calm him down, and and not only that, this is the big issue. They, they struggle first of all with the fact that a God of love in the Bible could actually be also a God of wrath. But the second is there's something that just doesn't sound right about the idea that God would take that out on His Son. That God has this wrath stored up, and He has to kind of spend it on Jesus. Some have actually called this uh, cosmic child abuse. That's kind of a phrase. That guy gets angry at us, and so he takes it out on his son in order to do those things. And they did not like that idea, and so they dropped it. Um, let me say this. First of all, I believe in expiation. I believe there, there's too many texts in the Bible that say that, that Jesus comes and he removes our sin, and he removes the guilt of our sin, and he removes the curse of sin from us. So I totally believe in expiation. Um, but I also totally believe in propitiation. And, and I believe that this, that, that ESV gets it right here, and that the word should be translated propitiation here. That's actually kind of true. Most proponents of propitiation believe in expiation as well. They just say you can't lose propitiation. Most proponents of expiation only want the expiation. 
Um, but but I believe that I believe in both. But I believe the propitiation is the right term here. That God's wrath is appeased whenever we talk about this term haliskomai. And here's why. Um, first is as I said, the term haliskomai consistently, and some might even say exclusively. Whenever we see it in Greek literature, it pretty much always means propitiation. So like every time we see this word pop up in Greek, almost every time, some would say every time we see this word pop up in other Greek texts, that's how you translate it, propitiation, an appeasing of wrath. Um, and it's uh, only in the last 60 years that we've decided that the New Testament uses it differently. So like we've always kind of said, this is what the word is in the Greek, and then in the last 60 years some people said, yeah, but the New Testament means it different than the rest of, of, of the Greek literature. And, and there's something about that that sounds a little silly to me, um, to, to kind of in the last 60 years change our minds on that. Um, second is you cannot read the Bible without recognizing that God is a wrathful God. Um, you just can't get through it. Um, God's wrath is referenced over 580 times in the Old Testament. 580 times. This is one of those passages in Ezekiel 7, 8 through 9. I am about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. I will repay you for your conduct and for the detestable practices among you. Again, Ezekiel 7, 8 through 9. This idea of God spending his anger. That sounds like a wrathful God. That sounds like an anger that needs to be appeased. Um, you can't escape it in the New Testament either, as, as many would try to do to say that the Old Testament God is more God of wrath. But in the New Testament, he's all love and mercy and and kindness, and he puts all that wrath and he puts all that anger aside. This is Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against humanity, against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Ephesians 5 says this, that God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And John 3.36, Jesus says it, if someone rejects Jesus, God's wrath remains on him. That is, that is, it starts like you, it starts on you. Because of your sin, when you sin, God's wrath is on you. And so what you do with Jesus doesn't decide whether wrath is coming to you or not. No, no, it's already there because of your sin. What you do with Jesus determines whether or not he will take that from you. Whether or not it will be absorbed and therefore removed from you, that wrath. So in the New Testament, wrath is big. You cannot read the Bible without it. So first... Propitiation is how it's usually translated in the scriptures. Second, you can't read the Bible without seeing that God is a God of wrath. And third, I would say this, expiation doesn't do justice to a God of justice. And when, when, when all we want is expiation, when all we want to say is, you just kind of push it to the side. God will look the other way. Jesus kind of covers it up so God doesn't have to see our sin, and then he can kind of say, okay, we're good. We'll let that fly. Um, like that, that doesn't do justice to who God is in all of his holiness and justice. Um, we would say this, that in the same way that a good and right and just judge always punishes crime, a good and right and just God always punishes sin. 
He has to punish sin in order to be just. Um, and so I, I think I think that that would, if, if we remove propitiation from this idea that God's wrath is poured out on sin, then we we lose a part of God's character, His justice, and His holiness. For those reasons, I believe propitiation is the logical way to translate this. So the question is, why do people um, refuse to go with that? Why do they hold so much to expiation? Why is it that they want to get rid of that propitiation? Why is it that the PCUSA drops in Christ alone? Why is it that C.H. Dodd could not, a, a great New Testament scholar who said a lot of great stuff, why is it that he could not move himself to grab a hold of this idea of propitiation? And I, I believe that the reason why is this, that they are confusing pagan propitiation with biblical propitiation. That they are confusing the, the, the propitiation that is required of the Greek gods with the propitiation that is required of taking place with God. Even though it is very similar, there is at least three distinct areas of difference between biblical propitiation and pagan propitiation. The first is in, uh, number one, the uh, need for propitiation, or you could say, I think I got purpose, uh, or the reason, yeah, the need or reason for propitiation. So in the pagan view, the reason that you needed to have propitiation in, in, the, in pagan literature for the gods is because the gods were um, bad-tempered and moody and easily offended. In other words, you never actually knew exactly what was going to tick them off. You were never fully sure what it was. I mean, there were some things, of course, that would definitely make them mad, but, but they, were, they were kind of moody, and, and they could kind of lose their temper easily, and so you didn't, you didn't fully know what it was that was going to make them angry, and you didn't know when they might be a little more gracious or when they might not, and, and all of those things. And so the need, the, the reason that you need propitiation is because the gods were easily offended, and you had to be able to kind of soothe their moodiness. The biblical reason for propitiation, the biblical need is this. It is because of God's holy nature because evil cannot come into his presence. In contrast to the Greek gods, there is never any doubt about what makes God angry. By the way, I'm talking a lot about God's anger and wrath. We, we should also point out that the Bible consistently says this, that he's slow to anger. That unlike the Greek gods who might spout off at any moment and lose their temper, the Bible paints this picture that God is patient with us. He is slow toward anger. Um, but, but we never have to wonder what, what might happen. What, what might we do that might make him mad? What is it that might frustrate him? No, the Bible is clear from beginning to end. He is, he is steadfast against sin. So God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is a settled opposition to all that tears his creation apart. Say that again. God's wrath, unlike, or, yeah, unlike the Greek gods, it is not a temper tantrum. It is a settled opposition to all that tears his creation apart. That is, sin is tearing apart his creation. It's tearing apart those who have been made in God's image, um, breaking down that image in them, and God is consistently against that. Um, he's not just flying off the handle. He's always against that. Number two, the number two difference in, in propitiation between the Greek gods, the pagan gods, and the biblical view is the initiator. 
of the propitiation. So in the pagan view, the, the initiator was, um, the initiators were the people. We have made the gods mad, the gods are angry, their wrath is coming, and so we need to initiate something here that will make things right. And so the people would come and they would um, offer, offer some sort of gift. In other words, this is a great way to say it, the people initiated what the gods would not so the gods aren't going to come down and make this better. You better do it. The biblical view is this, that God initiates what we could not. So in other words, I can't do anything to make this right. I cannot do anything to appease God's wrath in and of myself. And so even if I wanted to, I could initiate this whole thing. So in, in the biblical view, it's God himself who initiates this idea. It is God himself who comes and, and brings the sacrifice. Romans 3.25 actually uses this word. It's one of my favorites in kind of understanding God and his justice and all that. But Romans 3.25 says that God presented Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. That's kind of a, that, now that is a brand new concept. So you, didn't, you don't see that in Greek literature. Zeus presented a propitiation in order for him not to be mad at the people anymore. Uh, that's not how it worked. It was always the people bring something to the gods... And in this one, God initiates. God presents the propitiation in presenting his own son, Jesus. That's radically different. And the third thing in which these, these two areas differ is in the nature of the propitiation or sacrifice. In the pagan view, um, people offered whatever they had to the gods. So I have my crops, I have my animals, I have my whatever, I have my money, I have my... So what I have, I come and offer this to the gods to appease them. In the biblical view, God offers himself. God provides for this. Even in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were actually understood to be provided by God himself in Leviticus 17, 11. Leviticus 17.11 mentions that, that the sacrifices are God's providing this for us um, as a means of taking care of our sins. Um, and, and as I said, some don't like the thought of us sinning and then God going and taking it out on his son. But they fail to recognize this key truth, this key doctrine, that is the Trinity. And that is that Jesus is God. God is God. Father and Son and Spirit, all of these things together. So it's not, it's not just God getting mad and, and beating Jesus because he's mad. No, no, Jesus is one in, the nature, one in nature with the Father. They're together. And so um, it's God offering himself even for himself to, to appease himself. This is the way that John Stott puts it that is um, my favorite um, that, that we've quoted here a couple times. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. I love that line. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. This is why I believe propitiation, and this is kind of brings us back a little bit towards that original question. So we say that Jesus comes and he offers a propitiation for sin. Quick question, whose sin was Jesus paying for? 
sounds like a simple and dumb question, and it kind of is. But what I mean by that specifically is what species was Jesus coming and dying for? Was Jesus coming and dying for the sins of frogs? Was he coming and dying for the sins of lions um, or angels? This is actually, that's actually kind of a, a point that's made in Scripture. He does not come to die for angels. Um, no, he comes to die for human sin. He comes to pay for human sin. Um, angels um, cannot come and die for human sin. Lions cannot come and die for their sin, uh, for human sin. Um, and and the, the writer of Hebrews is going to get into this. Goats, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away human sin. Why? Because only humans can pay for human sin. This is actually what's even interesting. Gods, like Jesus, cannot come and die for human sin. A god cannot pay the penalty for human sin. There's only one, one type of being that can pay the penalty for human sin, and that is a human being. Only one that can do that. And so only humans can do this, and this is why Jesus became human. And this is how Jesus became perfect. Um, as you guys, as you guys mentioned, it's when it says that Jesus was made perfect in his suffering, it's not a reference to the fact that Jesus had any imperfection in him that needed to be dealt with. There have been some who've gotten really far off on this, believing that well, if Jesus had imperfection removed from him through suffering, then that means that's how I should remove imperfection from myself. And so that's led a number of people throughout history to like extreme asceticism in which they deny themselves some of the basic um, needs of the body or sometimes even beat themselves, self-flagellation, whatever, as a means of trying to suffer and remove the imperfections from them. After all, that's the way Jesus was made perfect was through suffering. So I could be made perfect that way too. No, 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 you guys hit it. There's no imperfection in Jesus that needed to be removed. He's not, he's not becoming more holy or more sinless through his suffering. That word perfect actually often means complete or whole or adequate. And so what we're saying when it says that Jesus became perfect is that not that he became sinless, but that Jesus became exactly what we need. Completely, wholly, adequately what we need. We couldn't, if Jesus had not come and taken on human form, not, not, just, not just human form, but become fully human, then he could not have been a perfect sacrifice for us. And had he not suffered, then that, then that trailblazing that Nancy talked about, I believe that is a great word, that, that, that when it says that he's the founder or author, that he is the trailblazer, that he clears the way for us to God, that that, that that path is all the way made to God through Jesus in his humanity and in his suffering, that it is made complete or whole or perfect in its way to God by Jesus' coming and his suffering for us. Um, what, what we see in Jesus is that he is one who came and lived the human life that we were supposed to live so he could die the human death that we were supposed to die, and in that process make us right. <coughs> Jesus came and lived the human life that we were supposed to live so that he could die the human death 
that we were supposed to die. And in doing that, he absorbed the wrath of God. He became a propitiation, taking it from us and making us right. So that's, in that sense, he is the founder or the author or the trailblazer of our faith, making a way for us. And that, notice this, this is kind of interesting, I'll just, with this idea, wrap up. Uh, I love that the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, takes pains in chapter 1 to lift Jesus as high as he can, to show him in all his glory and exalt him above <laughs> angels, above all creation, above everything else. Um, he is the exact representation of God. He is the exact image of he is and he, uh, of who God is, and he is above everything. What you're going to see, though, now, actually, is that he's going to take pains for the next two or three, four chapters to bring Jesus down to our level, to, to, to make it clear that he is human like us, because the writer of Hebrews knows something that we now see and know today, that we need both, that had Jesus come simply as fully God, he could not have saved us, he could not have empathized with us. He could not have been the perfect high priest that chapter 4 will say that he is because he could not have, he, he was not in our position. But had he come as fully man alone, he could not have been powerful enough to save us. He could not have had the authority to defeat sin and death. He could not have had the ability to live the right kind of life that we live. We needed someone who could be both. That is the crazy, miraculous beautiful thing about the incarnation is that you get exactly what we need, the perfect propitiation, fully God, fully man, living out everything we were supposed to live out so that he could take on the wrath of God for us and clear away to God for us. Jesus being both, and he lifts both sides up because both are key and crucial for us. I have no idea how Jim usually ends this thing whether it's with questions or with prayer or an invitation, if you want to do that right now. Um, I, do we should just pray our way out of here? Well, do we you do? can pray or ask them if they have questions. Sure, okay. And then Quest pray your way out. All right. <laughs> questions? Is there, uh, is there any, any questions or thoughts kind of on top of that? Um, you said that Christ came to live the life that we could not live so that we could live death. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What, I mean, what kind of death was that? Were we just supposed to get to an old age and yeah, yeah, yeah. away? Or, because if we were without sin, yes. trying to... Yes, yes, and so I should say that. So he lived the life we were meant to live, um, sinless, in order to die the death that sinful people were supposed to die. And so specifically I mean when I talk about the death, I'm not talking about what kind of physical death is me as much as I mean the separation from God that we were meant to experience. That's a good question. I'm glad you clarified that. So yeah, what I mean is that in our sin, death at its at its fullest point is a separation from God is, is what I'm talking about. And that our, our souls are brought away from him. And Jesus came and experienced that. Um, in place of us so that we don't have to experience that for eternity. So it's a good question. So you could rephrase that so that he could die the human death that we were supposed to die because of sin. Yes, yes. So if you, to, to kind of clarify that we were supposed to die because of sin or that, that we were supposed to die, supposed to experience in our sinfulness, basically. Mm -hmm.
Thank you, Pastor. Did you say Jesus provided both propitiation and expiation? Yes, I do believe that he provides expiation and that he removes our guilt from sin from us. He removes sin from us. The Bible really does talk about, um, there's a lot of debate in theological circles about what atonement really means and what God accomplished in Jesus' death and, and in the atonement that took place. So um, there's, there's this idea of expiation, removal of sin. There's propitiation, which is lined up with what we call penal substitutionary atonement. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's that idea that basically exactly what I talked about, propitiation. The penalty had to be paid for sin. That's penal substitutionary atonement. And Jesus did that. He substituted and paid the penalty. There's the idea of Christus Victor in atonement. Um, and that is that what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross and rose from the grave um, was more about him gaining victory over the universe and victory over death and victory over the world. And so he sets himself up as king and establishes a new kingdom, and we get to be a part of that. Um, there's also a, a kind of atonement that's known as Christus Exemplar, or a theory of atonement, which basically says what Jesus was really doing on the cross, he wasn't paying for your sin. God's not angry at your sin. He's not, he's not, don't worry about that. What God was doing was he was setting an example for us, or what Jesus was doing was setting an example for us of God's great love when he died on the cross, <coughs> Christus Exemplar. Um, and, and that one by itself is dumb. Um, because as, as Tim Keller points out, like if I wanted to, if, if you and I were standing on a bridge one day and I just said to you, hey, you know how much I love you? Let me show you how much I love you. And I just jumped off the bridge and just died, but there was no purpose to it. I wasn't saving you from anything. I was just dying as an example of my love. You would go, that was stupid. Why did you do that? Um, right? So by itself, that's dumb. Um, but I do believe that that's in there. Here's, here's what I would kind of get at is the Bible seems to teach that the atonement of Jesus is multifaceted, that there really is a whole lot going on in his death and resurrection, that he is paying the penalty for our sin and absorbing God's wrath, propitiation, and he is removing our guilt and sin from before God so that we can be holy, expiation, and that he is setting an example for us of the great and beautiful love of God and how we ought to show that to others, Christus Exemplar, and that he is the reigning king who through his death and resurrection defeats all things and sets himself up over all principalities and powers. And so the Bible seems to say this, there's a lot going on, and anytime we just try and say, well, it's only this one thing, I think we miss it. Um, I believe all of those things are taught in Scripture. So, Could you spell that Greek word that, there, uh, that is translated either? Yes, heliskamai. Um, I will, uh, yeah, here's the transliteration of it. Um, heliskamai is H-A-L-I-S-K-O-M. A-I, H-A-L-I-S-K-O-M-A-I, Haliskomai. And what word is, is more accurately translated expiation? Um, What's that Literally, there's not, that's, that's kind of the, that's okay. the whole debate. Oh, there's okay. not another word for expiation. The question is just, is propitiation okay. expiation or, yeah, or is Haliskomai propitiation or expiation? So, yeah. Anything else?
Yeah, yeah. Like there's care in the time continuum. Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm track with you. And there's there's a there's a Hebrews Hebrews ten will get into this idea that Jesus um, that Jesus death was paid once and for all, but then it'll also get into this idea that um, he died, um, that his sin covers not just our own sins, but also those in the past whose sins could not be covered by the blood of bulls and goats. And so it's you know, I'm jumping way ahead, spoiler alert, um, uh, but basically that like, that, that when, when Moses and when Aaron and when all those were offering sacrifices in the temple or in the tabernacle, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that none of those were actually doing anything. That those were just a symbol and a pointer to the actual reality that even Moses' sin was actually being taken away by Jesus. That retroactively, um, he was, that, that the death of Christ almost stands outside of time and therefore is covering the sins of people from all time. So again, totally, if I was teaching that point, I'd be so bummed that somebody came and talked about it before I got to come talk about it. So, uh, so don't tell Jim. If, if you didn't know that already, I think a lot of you already know that already, but if you didn't already, then when Jim talks about it, just go, oh, and act like it's brand new information. So, uh, uh, anyway. I heard, I heard this question as I kind of stepped in. In what way does, does Christ's humanity identify with females, with women? And, and, and yeah, that's you got an answer for that? Um, no, but yes. Um, I, I think actually when it says that he came and he identified with us and he was made just like us, um, the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make is not so much that he identifies with our um, specific uh, gender's outworkings of temptation and brokenness and failure, but that he does identify with our brokenness and temptation and failure as humanity as a whole. Now that plays itself out in different ways. So um, for men have a struggle with, can, can struggle with a lack of value or self-esteem or self-worth that will often work its way out in um, addiction or in sexual um, sin women will often let that play out in things like um, gossip or bitterness or, um, or, or things like that or relationship strain between people because of the lack of self-esteem and self-confidence. And, and I don't think that the writer is trying to say that Jesus experiences each one of those specifically, like each one of those outworkings of a lack of self-value or of a simple, but he does actually deal with the temptation of that. Um, so I don't know that I can say that Jesus experienced temptations towards homosexuality, but I do believe that he, or that he experienced temptations towards adultery. He couldn't have, right? He wasn't married. When it says that, when the writer will say that he was tempted in every way just like us, well, he couldn't be tempted towards adultery. He wasn't married, but he was tempted towards sexual sin, I believe. And each of us deals with sexual sin. It works its way out in different ways, depending on our gender, depending on our age, depending on our background, depending on, right? And so our, all of those variables have us deal with it in different ways, but the core, the root of it is still the same. That's the, the sin towards, or the temptation towards sexual sin. And I believe in that way Jesus identifies with every human being, even if it may not be in the exact specific outworkings that lie with each individual, with each gender, or however you want to say that. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but. That was a great answer. So. 
Anything else? All right, now we'll sing an invitation hymn, and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll pray, and we'll, I'll pray, yeah, Christ time, definitely. Um, I'll pray, and we'll be done. Uh, you should take an offering. Payment for your services. All right, I'll pray. Dear God, uh, this is big stuff, and and uh, and I, I hope I hope I handled the word of truth rightly today, and I hope um, hope that I'm speaking things that are true, and, and if if in any way I'm off, um, I pray that you would hinder that. <laughs> And uh, help us to forget it or, or not to hold too true to it. But where truth has been spoken, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit would move it deep into our hearts in a way that changes us. I am so thankful and so grateful um, that you are just and that you punish sin, but that you made a way to forgive us by, by allowing Jesus to take all of my sin on him, all of our sins on, on his body, and then that you just punished all of our sin then, right there on the cross, so that there's no more need for it anymore. And uh, that, we can, that we can know you and, and uh, that, we can, uh, that we can be sons and daughters of glory because Jesus cleared the path for that. We are so grateful for that, and I pray that you would let that truth ring clear in our hearts and minds. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Drew.